0: Show for throttle junkies, motorheads, and anyone who loves rock the driver's seat. From Barn Fresh to concourse Ready, Road Muscle Radio parks the latest news and the biggest names in rolling thunder right in Riding your ears. ears. Let's welcome your show hosts, 30-plus year radio veteran, author, playwright, lousy karaoke singer, and lover of fat and freaky American classic cars, Mark Catfish Groves, and freelance automotive journalist, senior auction analyst for Sports Car Market magazine and American Car Collector. Magazine. Writer and editor of ReadTheDriven.com, Brett Hatfield. Let's put the pedal to the metal. Road, Road muscle, muscle Radio is on the air. Good to be here with you for another sit down to chew the fat on rolling iron muscle. I'm Catfish Groves. And I am Brett Hatfield. Be sure to check out Road Muscle Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and at RoadMuscleRadio.com for links, our blog, events, if we can find them, and if they don't disappear too fast. And, of course, our podcast. There is an event. There is an event. Ooh, we're going to have to get there. Yeah. Also, please share Road Muscle Radio with your friends and maybe leave us a review on your favorite podcast source. You know, every little bit in the tank helps. You know what I mean? Know what I mean? Know what I mean, Vern? Throw us a stick. Coming up in this episode of Road Muscle Radio, a peek at some gurus of Restomati nirvana. Possibly the five worst problems to look for with modern muscle cars. Possibly. And why your two-wheeler ain't turbocharged. Unless, uh, well, I know you have, I love that you have knowledge and an opinion on this. Uh. <laughs> I'm sure we're all sure. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, in segment two, Mike Patterson, he's the owner of historic Harley Davidson in Topeka, Kansas, and owner of the way cool Evil Knievel Museum. It's connected to the uh, Harley Davidson dealership. He's going to join us to chat about jumping not only buses and canyons, but Corona and history. Now uh this week did you do anything cool or fun with vehicles? I did. Well, yeah. it was cool for me. Uh I worked on all
1: of my crap. I polished and cleaned and shined and did all that stuff. Uh worked on uh that that new Harley that graces the garage. Oh, the Moo? The the Moo Glide. And uh it looks so good that I'm thinking about selling it. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing. Well, when, when I love She's so pretty, I need to divorce her. What the hell? <laughs> I could make money on that girl. Uh, when I got it, I bought it for a lot less than it was worth, and it needed some work. But I also knew that this is work I'm really good at. This is stuff I've done a lot. Yeah. And uh, even Rhonda's standing there going, you could fix that. Yeah. And, oh, speaking of Rhonda. Speaking oh, of, my, oh, love- yeah, yeah. of Today, my lovely bride. This recording date on today's date... On today's date in history, uh, we got married 13 years ago
0: hey, <laughs> in, Today, in, in all places, a Harley dealership. You know what's great? You can tell the romance is dead because you're in a basement with me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, I have promised my beloved that we will go to a rather expensive and calorie-excessive Italian uh-huh. dinner later this evening.
0: Okay, very good. So we need to hurry up. <laughs> oh, and, and
1: And I gave roses. Talk, monkey, talk. <laughs> no kidding. Anyway, bought the bike. Yeah. Knew it was cheap. Knew I could do the work. Got a little bit more invested in it. It's worth about twice what I got in it.
0: Yeah. You know, and if... If you're not absolutely in love with it, why not?
1: Well, I am, but I found another bike in Texas. I'd be absolutely <laughs> in love with too. You're
0: gonna cheat on your Moog Light. I knew it. I knew
1: it. I didn't know it, but I knew it. Well, I never cheated before. I always divorced one and got another. It's <laughs> kind of the way I'm looking at this.
0: Uh, that's, Thine heart art fickle, <laughs> but uh, you know it makes sense. I do the same thing. Serial monogamy. So, I uh, I actually went to Kansas City Auto Museum for the first time in for I know I slept on, uh, right through it on Saturday morning, and it slept was slept uh, right through it. It was awesome. I really miss that. If you go to the Facebook page for Road Muscle Radio, you'll see uh, I did a little photo album Mm -hmm. and put all the the pics I I took while I was there. And uh, stopped talked to uh, Chip Ashby. Chip was there uh, helping and doing the work, so we chatted for a little bit. And, um, oh, gosh. um, now I I saw the pictures you took. You took lots of pics,
1: lots of good stuff.
0: Yeah, I did. You know, I'm I'm finally kind of learning that there's there's things you're interested in. You want a nice full view. Yeah. Maybe a rear end view, maybe if it's kind of interesting, you know, and then uh definitely an engine bay. Oh yeah. Yeah. Gotta take a pick of what makes it tick. Uh
1: the rule of three for magazine shots, you need a front three quarter, you need an interior shot, you oh, need an yeah, engine bay. So those those are the ones and you're absolutely right anyway good picks you got i remember promising you that i would be there there's a there's a a real chance that i may have been a little overserved friday evening it
0: happens and
1: there's a chance that i woke up saturday morning about 10:30 and my eyes felt like a couple pee holes in the snow
0: <laughs> It happens, uh, allegedly, Uh and has happened in my life, allegedly, before, too. When friends come in town and they stay
1: in your house for some reason... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What few rules I had right out the window.
0: Well, if you go to uh, the Kansas City Auto Museum, the uh, the military exhibit is really cool, and they've moved around a bunch of the cars, oh, so cool. there's some new vehicles in that I hadn't seen before, and I'm like, oh, yeah! And then, you know, chatting with people. Now, I kept my distance. I I did the whole thing. I wore my mask, I kept my distance, and you I didn't just,
1: give anybody a hot
0: <laughs> tweet? Yeah, I just... Uh, I'll be honest, I really wish more people might consider that, especially when you're out in large groups, but... Uh, other than that, what a what a great morning. Well, this I, is a dream. I didn't miss the
1: donuts. This is a dream for the antisocial. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> get the hell away from me. do touch is, me. This is a social ver- version of get the hell off my You're lawn. You're giving me the COVID
0: <laughs> by looking at me. Stop looking at me. <laughs> but anyway, so it was a great time, and thank you very much,
1: Kansas City Auto Museum. One of the pictures you did take, that Ford GT and golf livery. Oh, yeah, yeah. Favorite paint job on those. I love it love that it's Just, pretty yeah and you can't believe the premium that brings those are still going for about four and a half Gee, many <laughs>
0: <laughs> far out <Yeah. laughs> all right in news let's check this out uh a resto modding that needs uh, that leads to perfectionism it's pretty amazing there was an article in driving.ca by alex reed came out and i thought you know this is cool listed a um uh several There were five different uh, automobile customizers, mod shops, whatever you want to call it, dream builders. And I picked my favorite three Mm -hmm. and one that I think you would really like, too. Um, So I picked my favorite two and one that I thought you would really like. Uh But, uh, uh, you know, if you've got a classic and you want to just make it amazing... Uh, you, you'll also need pockets, you know.
1: Yeah, you better have deeper than lottery uh, lottery win pockets. You better have a
0: dragon somewhere <laughs> laying on a pile of gold, because son of a. B-
1: but anyway, yeah. uh,
0: uh, these uh, things were freaking amazing. So you, you picked one that you thought I'd like. I I picked one that I thought was totally you, because I think when uh when I talk about it, you'll realize, yeah, that's not exactly Mark. But uh, Well but, I like all three of these. So which one was it you thought <laughs> I'd like? Let's see if you can figure it out. Okay. All right. Uh, the three that I picked. Uh, this one talked about. Eagle is the name of the company. The Eagle Lightweight GT. Now it's a the Eagle Lightweight E Type GT. It's an almost from scratch breathtaker. This thing, it's beautiful. Uh, I even went to, I went to Eagle's website to kind of look at it too. Went from the article to the website. Uh, Eagle, according to their website, offers and I quote: original and restored Jaguar E types for sale, all prepared to our exacting standards, alongside the world famous zero miles Eagle. E-Type restorations and special editions. The Speedster, low-drag GT, Spider GT, and the new lightweight GT. An even cleaner, slicker
1: representation of the old Jaguar E-Type, the car that Enzo Ferrari said was
0: the most beautiful car ever built. You know, I beg to differ cuz i think they look like the nose from a Mac, max flesher cartoon the kind of big bulbousy front that's kind of almost thicker at the end than it is back where it meets the the cab and then it goes boom again not my favorite but i th- i thought this car was really lovely
1: jeremy clarkson did a review of these when he was still on top gear they are amazing cars but There are no nannies, there's no ABS, there's no traction (laughs) control. If you screw up, it's on you, dude.
0: (laughs) Well, that might be in the original version. But here at Eagle, uh, what they do, they take them and they rebuild them to kind of a race-bred version at newfangled heights. Yes. Uh, It's not a restomod. It's way beyond that. Almost every piece has been meticulously recreated and perfected. Eagle does at least begin with a, a stripped-down Series 1 E-Type. And then, even if not almost none of the original parts are retained, you still get 8,000 hours of building that goes into each one. Oh, yeah. Here's some of the toys that go into it that are different from the original. Upgraded and enlarged, all-aluminum, 4.7-liter straight-six. They put uh, three twin-choke Weber carbs in it in place of the original SUs. Uh, 380 horsepower. 375-foot-pound of torque, you know, not breathtaking by today's standards, No, but, fairly hella good. But coming out of a straight-six, that is going to be butter smooth. A manual transmission, titanium exhaust. <laughs> now, here's what I think kind of makes it uh, amazing as the final kicker. Uh, with e- almost everything they could they, that they could make out of magnesium, they did. And the rest of it's carbon fiber. So you're talking a curb weight of 2,200 pounds. And three hundred eighty and three eighty horse.
1: horse shoving it the thing would go like stink.
0: I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so that was fun. By the way, that's the one. Yeah, because uh, it Jags. Yeah, you know, you, you drop a crate three fifty in them. I'm cool, but yeah. uh, it's just something about
1: driving them with that inline six. And yeah, uh, believe it or not, a million years ago, Mom had an uh, 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 an XJS. Uh, is that it? Yeah, XJS convertible. Nice. Yeah. I could be wrong. Anyway. Mom had a cool Jag. I had a cool Jag. Had a Jag rag top with a big inline six in it. And it was not a screamer, but it just seemed to have this really elastic power band where it just kept pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling. And it was never really, really fast, but it was always
0: kind of sprightly and it was fun to drive. Well, I was a jerk that turned my brother on to a a Jaguar that I'd found. I think it was, oh, my God, this was uh, down in Texas. Uh I was looking on eBay or something. It might oh it might have been Craigslist. Oh boy. and uh I found this one and it was like twenty two hundred bucks. And it was in <laughs> what is it, the X was it H E, the high energy, the twelve cylinder? Yeah, yeah. And uh and I I think it was an eighty four. And he was like, Oh damn. Yeah. So he went and looked at it, and immediately bought it. Oh God. and I found out two of the cylinders were burnt. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, dude, just you drop a 350 and a my brother's like, no, no, I gotta, I'm going to have all my 12 cylinders. And he put $10,000 into rebuilding it. And it still had all of the original British uh, wiring. Yeah, so all that damn was... thing had a ghost running through yeah, it like as, He ended up selling it for the same that he bought it for. Lucas Electrics, the Prince of Darkness. But when it did run. I know.
1: Damn. I know. That was pretty uh, sexy. As, as the previous and current owner of a V12, uh, everybody who's a car fan should drive one sometime when it's working right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and then get rid of it <laughs> and then sell it. Mr. <laughs> All right, the uh, the next one, is, and we talked to this guy before, Icon FJ, uh, FJ40. Mm. Now we spoke with Jonathan Jonathan Ward, this evil genius behind Icon 4x4 and Derelict. Uh, brands back in episode four of road muscle radio this guy is super cool he is and his vehicles are too they Uh, are now according to this article the bread and butter of the business is taking classic toyota land cruisers and making them near perfect daily drivers which i think is you know it's it was like the bronco before the bronco was cool oh yeah the land cruise those toyota land Cruisers, even the modern ones i'm like damn Dude, I dig that that kind of yellow one with the white top, and it's kind of blobby oh, looking. And oh yeah, I any any day. Yeah, you just bring that right on over to Mark's house. Uh, now you can have yours from Icon any way you want it. They offer the FJ40 as a completely stock look restoration, as a crazy uh, kitted out off roader built for the trails of Moab, or as a patinaed old warhorse with brand new mechanicals. Whatever you got, uh, Jonathan, get jiggy with your jitney. Now, what comes with this? A choice of a Chevy-sourced LS (laughs) 6.2-liter V8 with either a 5-speed manual or a 4-speed automatic tranny. And for a more retro field, they can put in a 2.8-liter straight-six diesel with 5-speed manual. There's multiple wheelbases available as well as a four-door model that was never offered by Toyota in the first place. Mm -hmm. So a little magic going on at Icon 4x4. And you want a heated seat? Sure. Do you want the classic look inside? Sure. Customize out your earballs? Sure. With a half-flip. Uh, it can be as bare or as boof as you want this thing to be. And then they've got electronic locking differentials. Sweet. You don't have to get out in the mud and lock them out. Sport brakes and cast-iron manifolds into ceramic-coated exhaust. And this is just to name a few. Now, as a final note from the brochure, you can download at icon4x4.com, 4x4.com, uh, and I quote, His volume is extremely limited, with each vehicle assembled and finished by hand. It is an astounding act of déjà vu, reincarnations of classic utility vehicles that inspired a cult following since the 1960s. But while the look may be pure vintage, the body, engine, drivetrain, wiring, seat, suspension, and steering are completely state-of-the-art. Some people would look at that and look at what they
1: cost and think that's just out of line. But honest to God, uh, especially like we've talked about when I come back from Monterey every year, Every dork out there has got a Ferrari, a Lamborghini, or a McLaren. They get <laughs> old. They get so old, though, by the time I get back here, I don't care if anybody's got it. I'm not impressed. One of these, though, that's style.
0: Yeah. That's style. And it's so personalized. Yes. You know, pick your color. Pick your interior. Do you want leather? Do you want the old kind of uh, um, vinyl, that pebble green uh, yeah. vinyl? Yeah. Whichever, whatever. He makes it happen. And, you know, we talked to him about his builds in, in Episode 4, that sweet mother of heaven. Cool so, uh, stuff. Yeah, and it's, yeah, you're in this definite six figures. Uh, the next thing, or the. Uh, uh, Third car that I said I liked that you picked out just for me. No, <laughs> daddy like. Uh-huh. Uh, classic Recreations 1969 Ford Mustang Boss 9. Now, how often is a company officially <laughs> licensed to build resto mods of iconic cars? Not a lot, baby. Very seldom. Not a lot. Uh, so Classic recreate, uh, Recreations is one of them. And the 69 Boss Mustang 9, it's a Boss Mustang 9, basically a Boss tw- uh, 429. Uh, you decide if you want to use an original 1969 or 1970 Mustang shell, or you can opt for a completely new, new Ford-licensed body. I think the new bodies, don't they come from Dynacorn? I believe so. Okay. And all the 429 trimmings, they slap on them. What you get? 8.4 liter, 546 <laughs> cubic inch V8. <laughs> Jesus Christ. With, with uh-huh. hemispherical Boss 9 uh-huh. cylinder heads. Can't call them hemi, but yeah, well, they are hemispherical. It,
1: to, to steal a line from our buddy uh, Chris DeGanchi, you have to shut it off when it's getting gas so the pump can catch up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you are not kidding. Uh, 815 freaking horsepower. Lord. Electronic fuel injection, so it's not uh, naturally carved. Um, 200 mile per hour boss for 29 gauges. Well, you, you're so dumb. Your no. speedometer goes up to, th- holy <laughs> it hell. It goes to 11. I don't <laughs> want to be there. <laughs> I don't want to be there. It's a Tremac, uh, manual transmission with auto available. Why? And a full interior with five-point seatbelts, AC. Now, And it's also classic AC, so it's got that kind of old-style look to it. Uh, Wicked JVC sound system, bunch of options to make you giddy, blah, blah, blah. Company also makes a 1967 Shelby Eleanor replica out of carbon fiber. Not to mention a metric crap ton of other iconic Mustang models, plus a Camaro. I know why you,
1: you might do an automatic. On the off chance you want to take this monster down the strip. Oh, true. Yeah, be a lot quicker than doing a, a for real shift.
0: You know, when we talk to David Williams over at uh, Fastlane Classic Cars out of St. Louis, uh, all he pulls a, a quick strip, and he does it yeah. all manual.
1: Yeah, does it all manual in his uh, Cobra replica. Well, kit. God love him. You get first of all, he's he must carry his around in a dumpster. <laughs> <laughs> he's doing it in a caged cobra yeah that doesn't look scary at all i'm yeah. i'm less scared of my ex-wife's attorney
0: i you know i like my scalp and i kind of like my head where it is i just kind of
1: but yeah. uh, you know
0: this is my buddy
1: Skidmark. mark he had a bad accident
0: <laughs> i've got the reverse mohawk uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, i think they call it the shimp <laughs> but uh you know very cool car so and again uh, that wraps up the three. They had two others, and I was like, eh, eh, yeah, eh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But uh, those three, just amazing. And Icon 4x4, if you ever get a chance, go to their website, look at the derelict line oh, yeah. of cars, because those just make me giddy.
1: Well, great article. Link is on the webpage, and you can also find the link for Icon on the webpage, since we did have Jonathan on the show.
0: Absolutely. Next up on the news, hotcars.com listed their 10 worst problems muscle cars have had over the years, and most of these problems are fairly recent. We're not going to talk about, you know, a uh, 1970 Superbird or anything like that. These are more recent cars, but still little problems. Now,
1: I'm guessing the first four are keeping tires on the back.
0: <laughs> it would be for me. <laughs> um we're going to look at their top five. There were 10 of them, but I really don't feel like going through all those. We'll just zip through the, the, uh, the bottom five uh, quickly here. Uh, the, they said the, that uh, valve covers that may warp and cause an oil leak. Sure. Um, makes sense. Fuel tanks that may degrade due to exposure to heat, which I thought exposure to heat was interesting because, isn't it? Well, of course, if they're modern gas tanks, then you don't really have to worry about the degradation of you the know, fuel. We
1: know somebody who can help them with that, though. Mr. Tim McCarthy over at Hush Mat.
0: Oh, no doubt on that. Wrap that freaking tank. <laughs> <laughs> you're in like Flynn. Lamps that lack amber side reflectors, which pose serious visibility issues. Well, if you're going really fast, it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. What was it we were talking? Who was it we were talking to that mentioned about they had to put special headlights on? The- oh, uh, on their vehicle. I think it might have been on our brother podcast, uh, driven oh, radio over show. Over driven radio, yeah. Uh, it was the guy that set the new record. Tom, uh, 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 Fred Ashmore. Yeah, because uh, he, he had to put special lights on the front of this Mustang that he'd rented, and uh, you know, set the new record for the he, Cannonball Run. Because he, he said, and I thought it was a cool quote. He was outrunning his headlights. He
1: put that big LED light bar on the front of it. Yeah. Of course, Fred's also the guy who said, no matter what you do, a new Mustang GT will not do more than 159 miles an hour. I don't (laughs) care who you're talking to. (laughs) So he says.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, Okay. The faulty accelerator pedal return due to interference from the floor carpet. Throw the damn mat out. Yeah, you know, just scoot it back. (laughs) And and the uh, the number six on their list, ignition may get switched off due to accidental knee contact.
1: Oh, that's because all these cars have this stupid push button garbage
0: is that what it is okay I'm, I, I'm
1: assuming i've never i've never driven one so you know it, it, funny with this should come up i've never turned off a car with my knee however i did have warehouse keys hanging from the turn signal stock in my truck and they were hanging a little too low i wanted to get out the other day and it ripped my right knee open
0: <laughs> <laughs> you, one of the uh, things that i read about uh, with especially with classic cars, not so much the modern ones, is that you know, we I, I've got two hundred pounds of keys on my little uh key fob yeah, keychain. Not, not good. Uh, yeah, in the older vehicles they weren't designed for that kind of weight. They yeah. were only designed to have
1: like your key in it and maybe the trunk key. There's a reason I only have the key and the remote on my keychain, and that's it. And if you look at any of my cars, this is all I ever have hanging because I'm paranoid that that extra weight on there. You know, how many girls did you date where you saw them, and they had a glut clot of just key crap, key chains. <laughs> the little and, the feathers and, 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 the and all kinds and the of crappy Yeah, thing. but it, it
0: looked like a Nerf football in her purse. <laughs> 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 You're always thinking, that can't be good. Well, mine are all important things, but I, I will admit I did have like three bottle openers on it. So okay, that's, key. that's per- key. Perhaps my priorities might have been a little off. All right, let's hit the top five here. Uh, at number five from this article. That's from HotCars.com. Uh, faulty tire pressure monitoring system. Oh, get a gauge, you pussy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, old school. Hello. Uh Uh, This issue affected the 2012 Dodge Charger started uh, on some specific tires that they had uh, where the parameters for the tire pressure monitoring system were programmed. Now, according to the Defect Information Report, since the BBC confirmed in the suspect vehicle population, uh, it did not include a cold inflation value. So it kind of made things kind of change for 22 (laughs) PSI level. All right. Number four, disengaged park brake cable. That's interesting. General Motors revealed that the issue affects the 2015 Chevy Corvette. (laughs) This is according to a manufacturer notice. Some of the vehicles have been built without one of the rear parking brake cables fully seated and engaged. In this condition, the parking brake will only operate it on one of the rear brake drums, leading to a reduction in the parking brake's obvious <laughs> operational capability. I'm, I'm tired of driving in circles. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what is it? I'm limping like a sad dog. Uh, number three, electrical short circuit that can start a fire. That's important. That's exciting. Uh, affects the 2013 Dodge Challenger. According to the Defect Information, Repo- uh, Information Report submitted by Chrysler, seven incidents were linked to this issue. Uh, it's unclear if the issue would cause any injuries. The report also explains some vehicles may experience an electrical short circuit between the starter motor B-plus cable uh, assembly electrical terminal and the starter solenoid. Okay. So, you know, condition might cause a vehicle fire without warning, which really most of vehicle fires don't say, oh, hey, by the way, I'm going to catch on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's work on that. There's hey, a- hey, heads up, Bubba. You see smoke? Get the F out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Number two, possible engine stall due to alternator failure. That's in the 2011 and 2014 models of the Dodge Challenger and Dodge Charger. Oh, Dodge. You know, we love you, but dang. Come on, guys. Uh, The report also explained that uh, depending on the failure mode and timing, uh, the system voltage may drop to critical levels, disabling systems such as the anti-lock brake, System, electronic stability control, engine control module, central body controller, uh, result in a loss of vehicle power and your radio might go off, which is the worst part of it all. And at number one, <laughs> a missing fuel pump regulator. Missing. Missing. Didn't, not, not didn't just, get one. Yeah, yeah, none for you. Uh, it, this affects several Chevy models, including the 2020 Camaro. Because of this, a fuel leak may occur, and this may become an ignition source that could start a fire. <laughs> Again with a fire. Oopsies. So uh, those are those are the top five. If you want to check out that list, if you're like, wait a minute, did he just say my car? Mm-hmm. You can either rewind the podcast or, or go to hotcars.com, and you can figure out their, their uh, 10 worst problems muscle cars have had.
1: Okay, before we get on with this, uh, I have to mention Mr. Mopar if you don't throw some kind of a bid in on that 54 Plymouth that's at the Mecham <laughs> auction.
0: I, you know, I was trying to actually avoid that. You you sent me that link on that 54 Plymouth. Okay, that, Brett and I talked throughout the day on Facebook, and I am. And he sent me a link today. That was for a 1954 Plymouth. And gun. it's gorgeous. You know what? Overall, it's gorgeous. It's got flames painted on it. Yeah! The grease lining, the grease lining. Oh, you think you're not going to go over a grease and rama driving that? It's a, you know I will, I will. Definitely agree with you that uh, the inside of it looks beautiful. Uh, Everything, actually, the whole dang car looks beautiful. It's on Meekum Auctions.
1: Yeah, I think that is the best looking 54 I've ever seen. And along with what I said to you today when I sent you the message, I'm going to be at that sale. Buy the sucker. I'll arrange <laughs> transportation and get it shipped home for you.
0: I appreciate that. I'm gonna be right there. I do have it saved. I've got it bookmarked. I it's I'm, a it's I a fully
1: intend to lay eyes on that as soon as I get
0: there. I'll have to look at it a little bit more because and it's got a flathead six that's got kind of the the yeah, cool but hunk it's a dressed up. It. Yeah. The whole thing was just cool. It is very pretty, and I, I do kind of like it. It's it's a little humpy for. Uh, for what I'm shooting for. but Yeah, but when you, first of
1: all, that's got to be one of the cleanest 54 Plymouths you've seen. Yeah, it seeing.
0: is. And plus, I'll be honest, I like flatheads. I like how ridiculously cool they are.
1: And that thing has had just enough done to it. I like the flames on the black. I like the intakes they did for the two carbs on the six. It looked good. Yeah. And besides, they threw in that crummy little Elvis pillow by the supper. <laughs> There's this one that sealed the deal. Yeah, that's The Elvis pillow. That's the Elvis Elvis pillow in the back seat. (laughs) Every time you look over your shoulder, love me tenderly. Hey, baby. There's a little bit of Elvis in all of
0: us. You got an inner sandwich for that loud pedal? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I'm in. (laughs) Well, The Drive had a fun article on why turbocharged motorcycles are a uh, not great idea, and I disagree vehemently.
0: Oh, well, let's hear. What What a surprise. What was their
1: position? Well, apparently a version of this showed up on Bring a Trailer. Uh, Bring a Trailer has been selling some really interesting motorcycles the last few weeks. And, of course, along with all the car stuff, because I get Bring a Trailer their e- daily email first thing in the morning I sit there and I look at it while I'm drinking my coffee. Oh sure, sure. I'm looking at the bikes too and there have been some really cool like Honda CX turbos and stuff like that early 80s stuff. Turbocharged One, <laughs> motorcycles. Yeah. Uh they first introduced uh induction production motorcycle goes the Kawasaki uh, Z1R-TC. But the Honda CX500 Turbo has to be credited for beginning three years of turbocharged motorcycle insanity. And with Japanese manufacturers, if one of them does it, they're all going to do it because you don't want to be the odd man out. You don't want to be the <laughs> company that got left left in the weeds. And on the off chance one of them figures it out. The others will buy copies of that bike and reverse engineer it and figure out oh oh this is what they did to make it work
0: yeah we'll we'll patent this because our screw is a quarter centimeter to the left yeah because that that makes it totally different so everybody was taking a stab (laughs) at it uh the cx 500
1: turbo was kind of the kickoff for things and today uh the soft shape turbocharged motorcycles from the 80s Register kind of a feat of engineering, but not always the fastest thing. Yeah. Uh, the idea was uh, we could make – let's take a step back in time. And I don't think the article brought this up much. Uh, back in the 80s, there wound up being something called the chicken tax that uh, Japan was levying on all chickens that came out of the U.S. into Japan as imports. And for a way to get even with them and also to tax an import that they had and also to try and offer Harley some protection, the U.S. started levying a tax on Japanese motorcycles over 700cc's
0: displacement.
1: And there were a lot of Japanese bikes coming into the U.S. at that time that were 750 1100 cc's
0: well, that was the start of the Goldwing era wasn't
1: it yeah well uh right around there yeah uh when the Goldwing started to be bigger bikes yeah uh, but you also had one of the bikes that was most directly affected by it was 1983 honda vf 750 interceptor it was my first street bike but Ooh. they also made a 700 cc version of it that skated in under that tax and part of the reason that the uh japanese manufacturers started cranking up these turbo bikes as they were trying to find the same power you'd get out of a 750 or larger CC out of a smaller engine. So they put turbos on them, <laughs> of which kind of worked, kind of <laughs> worked. So the offerings from Kawasaki, Yamaha, and Suzuki cropped up in 1982 and 83 as a direct response to Honda's CX-500 Turbo, only for production does the C to cease across the board in
0: 1985.
1: <laughs> and I'm out. <laughs> uh, apart from Kawasaki's H2 line and Peugeot's one-off jet force compressor. How many of those you see out rolling yeah,
0: around? Yeah, but wait, that's not even a motorcycle, No, it? it was a
1: supercharged scooter. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I am a
0: motorcycle.
1: Forced induction has been absent in motorcycles and for a good reason. To go through the painstaking R&D and the packaging of a turbo into a motorcycle, you know, one of the things about motorcycles is they're really compact. Yeah. They don't have a lot of excess space. Turbos are not. And when you're working in a, in a package that small. Uh, turbos are driven off exhaust gases, so you have to do a lot of plumbing and rerouting of exhaust and all that stuff to get them to work right.
0: Well, wouldn't you? Doesn't that also add weight? So, wouldn't you have to change like the frame and some of the tubing, etc.? You or? wind up having
1: to do a lot of different r and d and a Oof. lot of different engineering. And remember that bikes at that time aren't selling for tens of thousands of dollars. No. Uh, you know, uh, if you spend four or five grand on a bike, that's a lot. That's a lot of money. And there's probably not a crap load of margin in them. Yeah. So, you know, doing all this engineering is uh, it's difficult. And again, there's the R&D and uh, the engineering and you know, they were trying to make each of these work within a uh, an existing frame so they didn't have to build all new frames for them. And it just uh, all kinds of complications now. With everything that the article had to say about good reasons not to have production turbo bikes. I'm left thinking, uh, yeah, but.
0: (laughs) Of course you are.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but. Now, in the late 1980s and early 1990s and into the mid-90s, well, even today, I mean, it it continues on with the Kawasaki H2R, uh, Japanese manufacturers started getting into, you, you started to see the beginning of what they call, Crotch rockets, cafe racers type type bikes, yeah. yeah. with all the plastic bodywork on them. They were very much replica racers and stuff like that. And the the race was on, just like it is with muscle cars now and performance cars now. Everybody wanted to have the next big thing, and that drove a hell of an aftermarket. Uh, there were companies like Orient Express and Terry Kaiser uh, operating Mister Turbo down in Dallas. Terry Kaiser was a madman, <laughs> and decided he would start taking these large displacement Kawasaki's ZX10s and ZX11s that were very, very robust, very strong, and very fast. Some of the fastest of the sport bikes being made at that time. And he started putting turbos on them. Oh my god! And trying to, he would try to hide them behind the bodywork where he could, but where he couldn't, he would hack little holes, and you'd see some plumbing here or some piping there. <laughs> And Terry was, I, I, I think it was Cycle World, if I remember. It was 1991, 1992. They tested a ZX-11 that he put out, and that thing was cranking out close to 300 horsepower. Oh, my God. Out of a 500-some-odd-pound bike. Huh. And I huh. remember reading the article. They had the boost turned way up, and they were having to add weight to the front axle. So this thing wouldn't <laughs> flip over and drive you into the ground like a steak. <laughs> so, oh so from a production standpoint, for, for manufacturers, turbo bikes, yeah, kind of, it didn't work well and it was really expensive. And at that time, they didn't have near the R&D that they do now. But the aftermarket... The evil geniuses, the mad scientists were out there doing this stuff. And Terry Kaiser is the name that sticks in my head. And I wanted one of those ZX-11s so stinking bad. A couple years down the road, I wound up getting a GSXR that a buddy of mine who's... Uh, he he ain't great at a lot of things, but he's a savant with bikes. <laughs> and he had built a nine-second GSX-R
0: that I was riding back and forth to work. Oh, my God, a nine-second... <laughs> <laughs> You got yeah. to work pretty quick. Oh, my God. I was never it was, late. Sometimes I arrived before I left. No. You know me well
1: enough. You know me well enough to know I'm too stupid to be afraid of much. Yeah. <laughs> this is the most terrifying thing I ever owned. It was so scary. I kept it for two and a half months and sold it. It was, it was God. And when I put the, I, this is bad when, uh, back when we were still putting ads in the newspaper. I put an ad in the paper and I, the, Last line in the ad was "beginners need not apply."
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was nice of you to warn, me. Well, I figured nice it was. Of you to warn. I
1: figured that was easier than printing this bug. I'll turn you into a bug splat. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: if, you, if you want to know more about these stories, uh, you can check out our blog at Road Muscle Radio. We'll have all the links and all the voodoo on there. Now, coming up in our second segment, we're going to talk with a guy whose hero as a kid could actually fly. Yeah. <laughs> the problem was it landing. Uh, <laughs> Not always well, <only> so good. <laughs> no. Uh, he was this guy was spectacular in the air. Oh uh, he was. Uh, it's Mike Patterson, owner of the Evil Knievel Museum in Topeka, Kansas. He'll be with us next on Road Muscle Radio. back with road muscle radio you can find us on the web at roadmuscleradio.com on twitter at road muscle radio and on facebook now if you know somebody we should talk to send us an email at driver at roadmuscleradio.com and we'll see about having them on for maybe an interview tell their story tell the story of their vehicle share pictures all hear in. i want, i always want to hear the story absolutely now, speaking of hearing some stories, mm. <laughs> Mike Patterson owns historic Harley-Davidson in Topeka, Kansas. He saw Evil Knievel live when Mike was just four years old. I'm uh, so jealous. He doesn't remember much else from that age, but he clearly remembers Evil's performance at the Kansas State Fair that year. He can still see it, waiting for Evil to come out of the truck, doing the speed runs, the wheelies, and finally, the jump. As he grew up, uh, Evil Knievel stayed his hero, and Mike's room was full of Evil Knievel posters, models, and the toys. Yeah, baby! I had them. His family <laughs> was all my, my friend up the street, John Van Meter, he had them. He had all of them. John was amazing, and I played with every single one. His family was already in the motorcycle business, so the love of cycles and psychos was uh, cemented. Now, Mike's grandfather purchased the dealership in 1949, and it's passed through three generations. And now, next door to the connected to the dealership, is the Evil Knievel Museum. That is so cool. Mike, welcome to Road Muscle Radio. Uh, thank you, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, four years old, you were introduced to Evil Knievel, and from what I've read about uh, your experience, you can remember it cl- pretty clearly. What was it like?
2: Oh, it's, it's crazy that I can remember when I was four years old, but that's how big a deal Evel Knievel was. I mean, he was everyone's hero and obviously mine. I mean, growing up in the motorcycle business, it was natural for me to be an Evel Knievel fan. Um, but, yeah, I remember that day, and I spoke with my cousin who was with me. who's quite a bit older here recently, and he asked me to describe it, and I described the whole day. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly how it was. So, I mean, I think <laughs> that just kind of shows what an impact that uh, Evel had on on me and who would have thought i mean never in a million years even even five years ago i wouldn't have thought that i would have the bike that he jumped that day you know in our building and it's it actually is and it's you know so it's pretty surreal every day is pretty surreal that all this stuff is right right here in Topeka, kansas
0: what year was that uh that
2: would have been 1971
0: Nineteen seventy-one, and yeah. you're this four-year-old kid sitting there. What what did he jump for you guys at the uh, state fair? Uh, it was he was jumped down in Hutch. right? Jumped,
2: yeah, he was in Hutch. He jumped Mack trucks that day.
0: Mack trucks, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and three blonde farm girls <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that night. So, um, the uh, connect the dots for us on how, you know, you've you've got this dealership. It's been passed uh, generation to generation. What uh, what was your involvement with motorcycles? Were, did you just work at the dealership, or did you did you do special things with with motorcycles?
2: Um, I grew up in the motorcycle business. I was there whenever I could be there, um, from a s- small kid and my first job filling the pot machine when um, you know I was probably twelve years old, and you know it's just been a part of my life uh, the whole way. Um, I eventually got into motorcycle racing um, with. With uh, professional dirt track, um, traveled around the country. So that was a big part of my my life in my in my late teens and twenties. Um, and then um, was working at the dealership through the whole time. Um, and then just kind of eventually took it over. Um, worked actually with my grandfather, my uncle, and I. All three generations worked together for many years. And um, now it's just me. Um, and we've we've been in the business, our family, for uh, 71 years in Topeka.
1: You say you got into motorcycle racing. Are you talking flat track racing? Flat track racing, yes. XR yes. 750s, yeah, uh, that's what one steel XR shoe XR and no brakes?
2: Correct. That's it. Yeah.
0: You so, are you my know, hero.
2: It, it was, uh, you know, a, a lot of my inspiration and um, came from Evel Knievel. And I wouldn't just say in the motorcycle racing world, but also in business, you know, taking chances and, you know, doing some crazy things that maybe are out of the box. And I would say... Putting an evil Knievel Museum in Topeka, Kansas is a little bit about like taking a leap over, you know, a bunch of uh, semi-trucks. And we're we're hoping to land, you know, on the <laughs> other side. Amen.
0: <laughs> Amen on that. So, all right. How did you get into the museum business? Because it's my understanding that you did a project for Jerry Lee Lewis that led to this museum. Yes. Yeah, so we embraced our history
2: um, at the dealership by doing uh, restorations on Harley-davidson's we got an um, an opportunity the the Lewis family called us um, several years ago um, we do jobs for people all over the country so we're kind of known as the main um, Harley-davidson dealership that does restorations so we when we got this call um, we of course jumped on it went to his house um, and it we found it in his garage and it was in a thousand pieces. Somebody had started the restoration and they did the easy part, you know, they uh, took it apart. Yeah. Um, so we were looking in sacks, boxes, drawers, um, um, Bruce Zimmerman, my, my business partner and the dealership. Um, we, we located everything, spent some time with Jerry Lee in his house. And um, he told us we better do a good job. And, and uh, we, we put it back together. <laughs> um, took us a while. You know, it's not a fast, Thing to do restorations, but once we got it together, we got it back to him. He put it in his living room. He was so happy with wow. having it. And then the family made a decision to sell it, and they <laughs> sold it on Mecklen Auctions. Um, and it was at their uh, Kissimmee event. Um, their so their big their big auction, and uh, he actually came out halfway through the auction, played Great Balls of Fire. <laughs> and and the, the bike sold for three hundred eighty five thousand dollars.
0: Son of a gun! Oh so it was goodness. a top
2: twenty motorcycle of all time at that time, <laughs> and we were pretty proud of the fact that we took it from buckets of bolts and, you know, was able to get it to the point where um, it could bring that kind of money. Now it was a lot. You know, it wasn't because of us. It was because of whose bike it was. But well, sure. um, it was perfect. You know, it was a perfect bike. What and, year
0: was the bike? Uh, do you remember? was uh,
2: 1959.
0: 59, okay. Yeah. So that's probably where he got a whole lot of shaking going on was from riding that thing. He you know? did, and, you know,
2: Harley gave it to him in 1959. You oh, know? good Lord. Um, because he was becoming, um, him and Elvis were um, just making their break, and they gave him this bike. So this was um, something that he had kept, and I bet you're right. He probably was. It probably shook him pretty good. That's <laughs> good. I like that.
0: So you've got this museum that you decided to do after this, this feeling and event with uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. And were you just looking for a place to show off your toy collection?
2: Well, so um, I did have a toy collection. I still had some <laughs> of the toys. But there's more to the story than that. So what happened was um, the family called us about uh, two years after we finished the bike and they said they had a business partner who was the largest Evil Knievel collector in the world. His name's Lathan McKay. He's from Austin, Texas. And he was a former professional skateboarder and uh, had done some movies. And um, he became interested in Evil and made this, um, just started buying kind of an almost, um, almost a sickness. He was, he was doing it 24 7, just buying um, Evil stuff. And he bought Evil's 1974 Mack truck um semi-trailer coach and 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 the actual trailer that he used to haul all of his ramps and bikes and oh my gosh um, that he took to every show so they called us and said you know he he needed this thing restored and they had taken it to somewhere in um i believe elizabethtown new jersey to have it restored by a truck restoration company well the truck restoration company had not done anything with it for a year and Latham was frustrated so the lewis family said hey Let's call the restoration guys in Topeka and ask them who they know that can do restorations on Mack trucks. So this is my first, you know, thought of Evil Knievel in, you know, probably 30, 40 years um, that I haven't really thought about him a whole lot. And they got the call and they said, hey, you know, told me this story. Who do you know that does restorations on Mack trucks? And my mind just kind of started spinning and maybe I got a little overexcited and I said (laughs) – we do restorations on Mack trucks, <laughs> and they—they uh, they believe me.
1: There he goes um, off the ramp. <laughs> yeah, we, we went
2: off the ramp right there, and uh, oh
1: crap! What's um, that down there? <laughs>
2: so, exactly. So we uh, we got the job, and uh, oh, wow. two years later, um, Mack executives came in because they heard we we had been restoring this thing. And they had given it to EVIL in 74, and they were pretty excited about the fact that it was being restored. And I got to tell you, when we got it, um, it was a little overwhelming because of how bad of shape it was. I mean, it was completely rotted out. Um, More sky than metal in the cab.
1: Oh, And uh,
2: (laughs) the MAC executives told us it was the nicest restoration they'd ever seen on a a semi.
1: So we took that as a
2: high compliment, and that's really where the connection to... Um, the Evil Knievel Museum came from, was us taking the, the, that job and really boils down to that phone call um, and saying, you know, we can do it. And then it just became a factor of lear- meeting Lathan, working with some of his other items, and realizing the fact that there wasn't an Evil Knievel Museum anywhere. And, you know, we had all this stuff of his and we were helping him with it. We did a few road shows, and then all of a sudden I just said, Hey, why don't we just build an Evil Knievel Museum right here in the middle of the country? We'll just attach it to our dealership. And he said,
1: Okay. You're really the and only Evil Knievel Museum anywhere? There is no other Evil
2: Knievel Museum, yeah. So we felt like, felt like there had to be. And Evil always wanted a museum, he just never was able to accomplish it. So the family was always interested in having a museum. They just didn't have the vision that it was going to be in Topeka, Kansas. So that was a pretty big hurdle for us to get around, um, to get the, get basically the licensing from the family to uh, to accomplish this. If the, obviously, we got it done.
1: I'm rather amazed that you're the only one there is. I would Now, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Evil was from either Idaho or Wyoming. He was from Montana. From Montana. 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 Well, geographically, I was close. <laughs> uh, yes. And there's nothing, there's no museum there. That's shocking to me.
2: Well, uh, interestingly, they—I I got a call from a city council person after we opened it up, and they were not happy. They were mad, <laughs> and they said, "Why did you build that museum in Topeka, Kansas?" Well, I "Because well, it's, it's where I live." Yeah, you know. And they said, "Well, you know, it should be here in Butte." And I said, "Hey, listen, you guys had 40 years to build a museum and uh-huh. got it done. Yeah. Nailed it." And he, and he said, "Good point." And so that was about it. <laughs> so With, did you um, give him
0: like two free tickets and say, "Come on I, down." Come on. Squeaky. No way. No, no. <laughs> Come on out. I'll buy you lunch. <laughs> no,
2: we're, we're big fans of you. And we've been up there. We've talked to their chamber of commerce, uh, presented to them and um, they get it. You know, they understand, you know, a little bit more. Why, if you were just out looking around the country of where to put the museum, it wouldn't be Topeka, Kansas, obviously. But, um, you know, it's because it's where our dealership is and, and, and basically goes back to that restoration business. And, um, with our motorcycles, we do the same. I mean, we restore bikes, and we just kind of moved over into some of the other type of restoration work with the truck.
0: So when you opened the but, museum, what was the uh, what was the response like for that?
2: Well, I mean, it was huge. And I want to back up and say one thing. We didn't do all the restoration work on that. We worked with about 90 different people in Topeka um, that had a hand in working on that truck because there were so many specialties that were needed. So we can't take all the credit for doing that that job, but we we led it and didn't. majority of it so um but your your question about with a response it was kind of unexpected um because what we found is you know and we knew how much he impacted so many people's lives you know around you know the ages of that are now probably uh late 40s to uh, mid 60s but now that we've seen how much he did impact people's lives it's pretty amazing and when we opened the museum, within uh, about two months, we'd had all 50 states visited.
1: Oh, um, no kidding. And,
2: and to this point, we've had 68 countries visit the museum, too. So it <laughs> yeah, kind of shows the worldwide impact of, uh, of evil, and it's been um, it's been pretty cool to see. It, I, I have to say it was a bit unexpected.
0: Well, Mike, tell us some of the highlights of the museum. I, I you know, I went on a quickie uh, picture tour, zipping through the, your pictures in Facebook, and it was just so cool. And there's one I want to ask about in particular. But uh, what are some of the ones that you're like, you know, this is really special stuff to have from Evil Knievel?
2: Well, it's really uh, the the museum is laid out in a timeline of his career, from when he was a kid in Butte to some of the other jobs he did and how he got into the Daredevil business, and then it kind of um, it follows a um, all of his his jumps, but we highlight a lot of the more um, famous jumps, and more most of the famous jumps were crashes. Um, oh yeah, so,
0: well let's talk about that a little bit for anybody that's yeah. young enough to be a little uninitiated. Uh, Evil Knievel was a guy who liked to fling himself in a motorcycle over a lot of uh, you know shisa and maybe survive the landing. And, well and for the ones who don't know about this
1: the uninitiated they're thinking oh guys do motorcycle jumps all the time they jump off huge stuff they jump up uh they jumped on top of that that tower out in Las Vegas he was jumping a Harley XR750 that had about Three inches of suspension travel, maybe, and you're right, Brett was a big steel bike with steel parts, and steel <laughs> fenders, and steel gas. It was they're big, heavy, and he never rode anything but Harley's. And,
2: and oh my lord! Your, yeah, he actually started on some other bikes. He ended up on Harleys when uh, the, the the motor yeah. company sponsored him. But you're right; those bikes were heavy. And the other fact is. Nobody had done this. So he was the first guy to start jumping these things, and it's not like he knew what he was doing. Um, <laughs> well, no. I mean, and that's that, because nobody knew. Yeah. You know, and then how do you practice and how do you figure it out? I mean, you, you got to fall. Well, most of these so, guys who
1: do the super long stuff now, they've got mathematicians and physicists figuring these things out. And how yeah, far and will suspension. you go? And what do you need to weigh? Yeah. Weigh? And how much power do you need to have? And how fast should you be going? And what's the ramp supposed to look like? And Evil piled some plywood on top of a bunch of lumber and went and cruised off the end of it.
2: <laughs> That's exactly right. And uh, the guys that do those jumps now, um, wouldn't trade places with what evil was doing. No, you know, I mean, yeah. there's it's, it's, <laughs> they, it's there's a,
0: they want to live. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's it's,
2: it's a unique thing, um, and they they have a lot of respect for him. But it, interestingly, you you talk about um, you know the calculations, and one of the things in our museum we have an interactive, uh, which is a very large screen and it's touch screen, and you can pick um, your ramp angle, your suit, your bike you're going to use. Um, all evil. Oh, dude, um, I'm coming out for stuff, And then you can pick what you're going to jump, how far you're going to jump, and then you put in your speed and you see if you make it. Um, so <laughs> you know, we thought, hey, this is going to be great for the kids; they're going to love doing this. Well, what we find out is, is it's mainly big kids that, that um, oh, they'll dude, like to yeah. play with it. Yeah. I'd be
0: on top of that thing so fast it'd make your head yeah, spin. Exactly. I, I right. saw the little virtual reality goggles that are involved with it, and this and that. and I'm like, this is just the well, coolest thing yeah, ever. That's that's you're actually have to fight me different. For it.
2: Um, interactive. You're speaking of our 4D actual virtual reality jump where you sit on an XR750 yeah. and uh, we brought in a, a daredevil, Doug Danger from uh, Boston. One of the only guys in the world that'll actually jump on a, on a Harley Davidson um, XR750 and we gave him a 1972 XR <laughs> to, to do the jump. So it's about as authentic as you get. He's put on three cameras on his helmet so he had an extra heavy camp uh helmet and we got footage so it's it's virtual footage so when you sit on this you can spin your head around in different directions and it'll it'll move with you and you actually take a ride and jump over uh, 12 police cars in downtown topeka
0: Oh, that's um, awesome. and doug
2: provided the footage for it and it's it's probably the highlight of the um of the museum, when you look at our reviews, it's the thing that everybody talks about. Now, says, these, days in, it.
0: these days in downtown P- Topeka, isn't that just a Saturday night? <laughs> 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 I kid, I kid. I uh, love yes, you Topeka yes. very, very much. Uh, so, so you've got these cool rides and all this stuff. Um, a little bit more about uh, uh, Evil Knievel himself. In, when we talk crashes we're not talking you know that he just kind of tumbled and said hey I'm good I'm good you know and you know rub some dirt on it you're fine what was that one okay
1: well the first one that comes to mind is Wembley Stadium and that was what 74 there 75
0: 75
1: yeah. and the term rag doll yeah comes it's, to mind
0: It's really hard to watch and you see it in slow motion. You know, oh. every, uh, all the YouTube videos are sl- slow-mo, and you're just like, oh, well, there's the wrist. Oh, my God, the leg. And it's yeah. it's so hard to watch. And then he came back from that and kept going.
2: Uh, that's and- the thing. I mean, that's the thing that separated him is and what, what was kind of awe-inspiring um, with people and what kind of made him a hero is not so much that he jumped and crashed, but he, that he continued to, to do it. And uh. that's where it's like... Um, Maybe he's a pretty unique guy, you know. You talk about the Wembley crash, the other crash. That's probably the one of the more famous, uh, if not the most famous, is the Caesar's Palace crash. Yeah, I was going to say Caesar's. Uh, <laughs> ragdolled, um, very similar to the uh, to the Wembley crash. So, What's cool is we have the Caesar's Palace helmet in the museum, and we have the Wembley Stadium helmet in the museum.
1: Oh my so god! So, it so it's it's Caesar's of our
2: feature items, and they're. Um, you know, I've held it and it's got so much energy. It's crazy. But all those scratches that happened, um, not scratches, gashes from the yeah. pavement of the Caesars Palace parking lot are on that thing. Same with the Wembley Stadium floor on the uh, the Wembley helmet. So those are two really cool artifacts that we have among okay. motorcycles, leathers, canes, um, you know, the actual sky cycle um, test unit from the um, Snake River Canyon jump, um, 300
0: pair of crutches.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So you, you talk about the the other interactive that we have that people really enjoy is the broken bones. Oh Uh, God. Bad to the bones (laughs) and it's, it's an interactive screen that you can move your finger around on it and you can, it exposes his bones underneath the leathers. And when you get to a bone that's been broken you can stop on it and hit a hot spot and it'll show you his x-rays from that particular part of his body, his pelvis or his back or his leg. And then you can look at the different jumps that caused him to break his pelvis or his back, which he broke six times. So you can look at the the x-rays from the, from the crashes and, People are really intrigued about all the broken bones, and that's that's a favorite of well, yeah, people. In, you know, in there's aviation. just
0: that thing about we, we have our own ideas of self-preservation. Right. And I try to imagine me getting onto a motorcycle and then flinging myself off another ramp, and I just don't have those cojones. So that's, that's impressive. Most of us don't. I yeah. <laughs> mean, there's I, there's just a few people on the earth that do. Nice. Okay, so we've got all those. There was one exhibit also, because I love the ride ones, and I, I want to see all the rest of it. You've got the the you know the Mack truck, uh, the various motorcycles. You've got motorcycles that he rode, uh, the helmets. And what is that? There's one that looks like a rocket. Is the, is that the actual <laughs> Snake River uh, rocket sled sky, The thing? Sky Cycle. Yeah, the Sky, sky cycle. cycle that he jumped the Snake River with, because I remember watching that on TV.
2: Oh, I mean, it, you know, everybody remembers it from that time. It was probably the, the biggest thing that was happening um, in 1974. Um, one of the biggest things, anyway. Oh, yeah, because so, that was when the Pinto uh, as was As far hot, as an so. event. It was one of the first pay-per-view events, and, you know, you had to pay $10 to go watch it somewhere, like in, a, in an auditorium, and people just thought $10 was absolutely crazy to go watch, you know, to, to pay to see something like this. Yeah. Um, but... What we have in the museum, uh, we have a um, piece of the actual ramp, which is part of the display. Um, we have the sky cycle sitting on part of the, uh, this part of the actual ramp. The sky cycle that we have is there was two of them, and it was always secret that there was two sky cycles. One was the, uh, the test unit that the promoters didn't want anybody to see any testing done because they, didn't, they wanted it to be a death-defying, death-defying act. Yeah. And they did attempt to test the test went the same way as what happened with Evil <laughs> when he didn't make it. And it ended up in the bottom of the canyon, just like Evil did in his um, identical rocket. So you can see exactly what the rocket looked like. Um, it was a steam-powered. That, uh, that's just steam, amazing. Which people don't know.
0: Yeah, steam-powered. Now, what did they do? Did they just kind of pump it up like one of those squirt guns that you pump up and <laughs> just <laughs> fill it full of steam and then, you know, let her blow? I, I don't that's, even I don't even understand how they got the steam into it.
2: That's a good analogy, actually, Mark. They they a, they have a um, um, a pressured um, container inside of it that they heated the water up to almost 600 degrees. So oh, obviously yeah. there's a ton of pressure there. Basically, just uncorked it. So he was along for the ride. There was no steering. There's no gas pedal there was no nothing oh that is insane and then uh you know nobody really exactly knows why it happened um there's a lot of still controversy today and we'll never know but a lot of people say he um he pulled the chute early because he freaked out but you know they some people say he blacked out and he had a kind of had a dead man's handle dead man's switch, so yeah. if he lost consciousness the parachute would deploy um or maybe the concussion from the um, actual takeoff caused him to move the, move that, or what um, is probably the most prevalent and likely scenario is it just failed from the concussion of and not enough testing, and the shoot came out from the concussion of, of actually um, lighting that thing off and let letting it go. So,
1: what was the takeoff um, force on that? It was it's got to be well north of ten Gs, I would think.
2: Yeah, I mean, he was before it was talking about that he probably would black out and then come to. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not a physicist um, or a scientist in that regard, but um, he did get up. This thing pushed him to a speed of 300 mile an hour and um, he had to parachute out. He's lucky the parachute stayed on or he wouldn't have made it.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's one of the things for anybody who doesn't uh, doesn't know about it. He gets into this pointy jet rocket sled thing, goes flying off the edge of what is still the uh, uh, part of the Grand Canyon system. Uh, it's flying, Snake River Canyon, yeah. Snake River Idaho, Canyon, actually. yeah. yeah. Uh, he's flying over the edge of the Snake River Canyon, and the parachute deploys too early. And, I mean, he was blasting along, and then there were, like, uh, the parachute comes out too early, and all of a sudden he's just kind of dangling. And even there were, like, little red uh, uh, smoke uh, streamers that were supposed to come out as he flew across. And those those happened, but it's just like, blah, as he's drifting down. Um, it was disappointing. I remember that as a kid. I'm like, oh, he didn't make it. But still uh, an amazing feat to try, oh, especially he- for a guy who's just a – put back together marionette with uh uh <laughs> just oh, too he's, brave. He's,
1: <laughs> one of the things you you got to remember is they didn't, even with the test, they weren't really sure what the sky cycle was going to do on the second run. Uh, you know, I'm sure they had some math and, and some science to it, but nobody was really sure. And this guy said, "Nah, go ahead. Strap me in.
0: Yeah. So strap me, strap me in. Right, let right. her rip.
1: They
2: didn't, actually, Evil thought he was going to die. Um, he was cranky. He was hard to deal with because um, the test didn't happen. He really hoped for a good one. They actually, to step back a little further, they had a third unit, too. And they brought the press out for that one and intentionally underpowered it and shot it off, and it went right into the to the canyon. But they did that in, on purpose just to make it more dramatic.
0: Oh, the second
2: man. one, he wanted to to actually happen and make it. And it didn't. So he really thought he was going to die. But i got to tell you one other story that kind of explains this guy. So when they test fit him about um, three days before the jump, he, they had him in it. And they f- figured out he could not get out of his, his um, six-point strap in uh, harness without help. So they quickly had another suit made and changed where the D-rings were at on the suit. And they flew it up on his jet from L.A., brought him the new suit, so that he had one. So if he needed to get out, um, because if this thing's going in the river, he's going to have to get out himself. Mm-hmm. Wow! So it got time for the for the jump, and they had you know big pomp and circumstances. They had bands. They had, it was on pay per view live. They they lure him in a helicopter and in a helico- in a, in a, um, a crane lowers him into the to the ramp, and his his uh, crew's all there, and they they sit him in the in the unit, and the crew says, uh, "Evil, you put on the wrong suit." He put on the old suit, oh, and um, he said, uh, I'm not going to change it now. So had he gone into the water, Done. no question he would have drowned. And he actually, when the, when the sky cycle came down with the parachute, no control, zero no. control. It's just by chance. He landed 10 feet from the water um, on the bank, and that's how he survived. Otherwise, he would have drowned.
0: Yeah, if there hadn't been a slight breeze blowing him back toward uh, uh, the bank that he took off from. uh, That's right. The wind blew
2: him back. So (sighs) he got in that thing that day, not only knowing that it probably wasn't going to make it, that if he went in the water, he was going to die, and he just said, let's go. I've told everybody this is what I'm going to do, and I'm not going to go change it. So, yeah, you're right. There's not many people um, that have those kind of – Whatever you want to say, sack.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> uh, is... attitude, uh, adventurous attitude. Now, one <laughs> of the si- little side notes: I watched a documentary about the Snake River uh, jump just recently, and I I thought it was kind of lightly, amusingly interesting. Only lightly, but still, they talked about. You could see in in the video from the event, there were gentlemen walking around kind of looking almost like sheriffs, and they had shotguns and their cowboy hats, and there were seven of them. And according to this documentary, they were hired by the promotions company. They were there to make sure he got into that damn rocket and went flying off the end of that ramp because they had (laughs) invested so much money in this event, they weren't going to lose it. So they That's had so basically true. armed guards. They had two of them walk him up to that rocket. It wasn't just part of the pageantry. It was to make sure he got in it. <laughs> they had shotguns. You're right. Yeah. Um, is all was...
2: kinds of pictures of those guys, and they, had, they, were, they were for real.
0: Yeah, yeah, there was no kidding around. <laughs> Evil's
1: thinking this is the crappiest Arkansas wedding I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> They're betting
2: good eats afterwards. It turned I, into an absolute mess. Um, it was really, there were so many people out there. And can you, if you can imagine, um, there was a chain link fence on the Canyon to keep people from going over. So it there was unexpectedly so many people that, um, evil hired the hell's angels because they had shown up and he went down and talked to him. He said, Hey, I'm going to hire you guys. I'm going to pay you a thousand dollars if you can keep people away from this fence. And they said, sure, we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Well, when that's when that thing went off and then it goes down in the canyon you can only imagine people 30, 30 people back started pushing and the people and there's it's really really um, amazing that nobody died and fell into that canyon because they were all pushing they pushed the fence over and they everybody was pushing up closer so they could see and uh, it was it was a mess and then let alone what happened after it yeah. um, it it just went into a like a a bad scene um, with, uh, you know, evil had promised everybody free beer if he made it. (laughs) <laughs> you know? and
0: okay, they, that's where he went wrong.
2: <laughs> didn't provide the free beer, so that's where things went bad. Yeah. That's so. where
0: it went south. Well, you know, what a showman. What an ability he had to really lock in with the crowd. And for the time, there was that excitement, that sense of adventure, that the novelty of it. What, wow, 1968, we're on the moon, and now we got guys jumping over all kinds of things. Really cool. We're talking with Mike Patterson, owner of Historic. Harley Davidson in Topeka, Kansas, and the Evil Knievel Museum. Now, uh, Mike, tell us about the restoration work you do at a Historic Harley Davidson.
2: Well, we do uh, um, all Harley Davidson, um, you know, back to 1903, all Harley Davidson. So we do work for people all over the country. Um, that's how we got the job with Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, we have a small museum that's another separate museum that's in our dealership our our building is a 19 uh 29 uh federal relief project building i wondered what uh, that is ourselves in
0: it looks like the alamo
2: yeah it does it has very it looks a lot like the alamo so it fits our our name with the story carly davidson and our our family's history and um so there's a lot of vintage bikes that are restored in there and then we do work for people all over the country as well as you know our real business is to sell New Harley Davidsons and um, you know service new Harley Davidsons and clothing, so the whole Evel Knievel Museum and uh, the rest of our business all kind of fit together really well, and we have a barbecue restaurant in there as well. So <laughs> it's a good trip uh, over you know from the Kansas City area uh, to come over and have some fun in Topeka for the day and um, enjoy our attraction and some barbecue and look at some cool bikes.
0: Now, just out of curiosity, where the heck do you find parts for those old, old, old bikes, or do you actually reman? I ask because I have a friend, he's moving to Seattle this week, but he has spent 15 years here. He has like nine ancient Harleys, and his dad has another four, and his grandfather, they all... He he just, you know, he's like, yeah, I got this engine. I just tore it apart and rebuilt. And I'm like, Jesus, how do you do that? You're a magician. And between he and his dad and what was left from his granddad, they either built their own parts and put them on because they've got the sheet metal benders and the English wheels and the this and that. And the, I, I, I don't understand where all those parts still come from. I mean, how do you source them?
2: It's an adventure on every bike, you know. It really is. Um, hard work, hard Hard work. We used Mark. to, to, uh, we used, we used to tend a lot of uh, swap meets and um, you know look for take a list and look for things. But I tell you, the internet has really made the business a lot more. Oh
0: uh, yeah.
2: Feasible. So we we find a lot of our parts on eBay and uh, sometimes we have to make things. Sometimes there's things that are remade. Um, but we also have the luxury of having 71 years of business in our place. And my grandfather, who grew up in the Depression and never threw anything away. Uh, so yeah. Um, we, uh, we have a, a lot of parts that we have to uh, we have to fix the parts, you know, kind of remand them. But uh, um, we seem to be able to make it happen on each one. Sometimes bikes will sit a while waiting for something that we're trying to find, you know, one little thing. And when we have to do the detail work that we do – it matters, you know, down to the certain type of screw or this type of plating on every single fastener. So it, it's, it, we have to do them exactly right. Um, and that takes a long time to get it done right.
1: So when I come looking for the original timing cover for my 93 Mooglide,
2: <laughs> I know what you're talking about. There. Asking yeah, for a friend. So <laughs> yeah. Your heritage uh, nostalgia
1: yeah. yes uh, with four, yeah. with fourteen thousand miles on it, and we just redid the Holstein inserts and in the seats
2: that's really cool that's uh yeah that's the type of stuff we find um we'll go out and find that that time
1: recover very cool
0: I have a fe- feeling there's going to be a conversation after we're done recording. are you kidding <laughs> me i'm trying to I want, I want to find
1: out how early he opens in the morning <laughs>
0: <laughs> well oh well speak it up, what are the museum hours, and how does a person go on a tour there
2: sure, so um It's the same hours as the dealership, which is um, 10 to 6, Tuesday through Friday. And then on Saturdays, we're open um, 9 to 5. Um, Because of the circumstances, we're not open on Sundays right now. Um, You know, we were normally in in summertime. We are, uh, but not right now. Right. Uh, The the museum is open, um, and, you know, Shawnee County, which is where Topeka is, um, just instituted, um, just read about it today. There, it's mandatory um, face masks for um, public places, um, sure. ours being one of them, if you cannot social distance, you know. So right now in the museum, it, it's very rare that it's crowded enough that you cannot, um, you know, you wouldn't be able to social distance. Um, so there would be a choice of people in the museum to whether they want to do that. Um, but, um, because it is open enough that they could get away without doing that, but that's, um, you know, the, the, the people that work there will be wearing masks, um,
1: as we're required to.
0: Well, you know, I'm um, pro mask because it just makes me mysterious AF. So, uh, now I'm wondering exactly. if I can
1: get my Harley branded mask there. Dude,
0: that'd be good. So, hick. Hey,
2: we do have can evil masks. Yes. Um,
1: <laughs> yes. So we do have branded ones. You can them. jump my face. I gotta that's be- awesome. And yeah. make sure I got <laughs> gas in the bike. Yeah.
2: Yeah, the statue when you walk in of Evil is wearing one right now. So oh, that's, that's
0: fantastic. Kind of, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So go to go on a tour, I know you can get tickets online. Um, do you have to set it up beforehand? Is it every 30 minutes? How does the tour work?
2: No, that's a great question, and we get that a lot. But no, it's just wide open. You can show up anytime. time. Um, we do have the option of doing a, a guided tour, which is an extra charge. Um, and it, the one thing that it does is um, – you can um, get into the uh, the coach, um, which is um, something you view into in the Mack truck um, normally. Uh, but um, $15 for uh, adults, um, $12 for active military um, vets or seniors, and then 7 and under are free, um, and it's $7 for um,
0: students. How old do you, What's your senior cutoff? Um,
2: it's pretty much uh, if you – you could probably get in there and just lie. You don't and say qualify.
0: What year? Yeah. What year? How old? 60.
2: We, we say oh, 62, but oh. if you're close, um, we just, we, we give you the scene. You know, with
0: all the money I'd saved, I figure I'd go to the Golden Corral yeah, afterwards. You, you know he's going to show up and go, hey, sonny, can I get in? <laughs> I, I want a seat inside. All right, so, uh, great museum located in Topeka, Kansas. Of course, the most important question we would have is, have you ever jumped a shark? you got to tell us.
2: Um, not to this point. Uh, hey! No, it, evil tried it, didn't make it. Um, oh my god, he, he actually made it but crashed in a, in nineteen seventy seven in Chicago. Um Fonzie did it, you know, on the unhappy yeah. Happy Days. It was you know back in the Jaws days. So we do have a display um in the museum where Evil tried to jump jump he, sharks and it's it's kinda of fun. He so was, he was I, wearing I a suit made about, of
1: chum. <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. Um, When you come to the museum, count on um, uh, at least a couple hours to go through. The average time is an hour and a half to two hours. We have some people that are in there for four hours and even up to six hours. So, I think the thing that we hear the most is they're very, very surprised at how many artifacts are there and are surprised about um, what, what it is compared to what they thought it would be. We've never had the opposite where somebody said... I thought it was going to be better. We, we've actually never had that happen or anybody say that. So um, expectations are always always exceeded, but do plan on having enough time. So we we stop selling tickets about an hour before um, closing, which doesn't really give you enough time to get all the way through. So plan your day um, to do that.
0: And what time's closing usually? Five o'clock on
2: Saturdays and then six o'clock on, on weekdays. And what a lot of people will do, it's a two-level, two-story uh, museum they'll they'll do the first floor, which is basically his historical um, timeline and the mac truck and then upstairs is more of the interact even the movie theaters and the IndyCar car and the Cadillac truck and the sky cycle um they'll do half eat lunch in our barbecue um, uh, restaurant and then come back in and do the second half but you got to be careful about eating before you do the jump that's all I'm going to say. <laughs>
0: Well, uh, Brett's got this great question. He loves to ask uh, all of our guests. I'll and let him rip on it. And we've modified this one
1: for you. Most everybody gets the car. The question: What's the dumbest thing you've ever done in a car? But <laughs> for you, for you, what's the dumbest thing you've ever done on a motorcycle? Oh, man. I've ridden motorcycles
2: my whole life, mm-hmm. and, uh, um, you know, I. I did race motorcycles and, um,
1: I'm super impressed with that too.
2: At high speeds. And I do tell people now, um, it was the dumbest, coolest thing I ever did, you know? So I, I think just that whole era, um, it's not smart. It's kind of like bull riders, you know, you don't get paid anything. You're, you're kind of risking your neck. Um, and I luckily came through pretty much unscathed, but, uh, I, I can say there's about ten years there
1: of being dumb. Um, so. Jumping out of airplanes is real similar.
0: Yeah, yeah. Brett, what was the uh, what was your land speed record that you remember?
1: Oh, uh, and
0: it, it involved Hutch, right? No, 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 no. no, no? no,
1: no. Uh, I did burn up uh, the front piston on a ninety six Softail Custom, seeing how fast I could go between oh. Hutch and McPherson. Uh, but fastest I've ever gone on a bike is one hundred fifty five, and I've done it a couple times. That's uh, not the brightest thing I've ever
2: done. <laughs>
1: no. No. And one I the- won't
2: ask you where he did it either.
1: Oh, I'll tell you, I was running. I was running uh, south on uh, sixty nine off I thirty five on one bike, and the other one I was running up behind Gardner Lake out uh, west of town here. But, yeah. Uh, one, not advised. Not advised. No, no, don't do this at home. One bike took a long, long time to get there, and another one got there in a big hurry with a gear left. And I decided mm. I didn't need to go any faster, even though the bike could. <laughs> yeah.
0: Not, <laughs> yeah. That's a that's a quick ticket to heaven. Uh, uh, <laughs> you, you'll jump Snake River right into glory land. Yeah, well, <laughs> you, you
1: wreck going that fast. They bury you in a Ziploc baggie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Now, that's
0: for true. more info, you can visit evilkenevilmuseum And by the way, it was it was hell on four hooves to make sure I spelled that at right every single time <laughs> in all of my yes. notes. It's E V E L. K-N-I-E-V-E-L museum.com and be sure to look for them on Facebook. You're, you're on Twitter. You've got an Instagram account and you can buy the tickets online and remember, we're practicing social distancing so uh, if you if you can't keep your sex then just uh, put on a dang mask and enjoy. Yep. Mike Patterson, thank you so much for sharing your story here on Road Muscle Radio.
2: It was really fun to hang out with you guys uh, tonight and talk.
0: You know, talk about a fun
1: day trip, dude. Oh, it, I uh, listen, I have to apologize if I started getting too much in the weeds.
0: I <laughs> know, you were cool. But
1: I wanted to go so much farther. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there's, there's so much to talk about. I mean, we barely touched on, you know, we, we were here to talk about the museum and then to talk uh, kind of touch base with uh, Evil Knievel. And, oh, my God, this Mike Patterson, dude, is just a wealth spring Oh, yeah. Of, of info, and we need to go, we need to go like heavy deep. What, what we need to do is go there and just record a live show.
1: Well, and I also didn't want to creep him out, by okay, here's the, <laughs> who's the fanboy?
0: Yeah. <laughs> I like evil more than you do. <laughs> yeah, I'm Mr. Harley. He's still got his, his action figures in my pocket right now. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's such a great guy, Mike Patterson. Uh, we so appreciate him coming around. Now, if you do decide to go on your own before we can get together a, a thing, and we're, we're going to do that. Yes, we're gonna we're gonna do uh, a road muscle radio day out there. We'll get it set up. I mean, they they've got barbecue. Well,
1: that's why I was asking them what time they open in the morning. <laughs> <No doubt. laughs>
0: we're golden uh, now. If you go to uh, Topeka, uh, you can maybe toss in a ride on the city's 1908 vintage carousel, which I didn't know they had. I think that's kind of cool. You can maybe picnic over uh, uh, next to the Kansas River, which is really pretty, kind of down in that area. Uh, you can go see Truck Henge. Yeah, there's a truck hinge. And
1: while you're there, be sure to swing by Westridge Lanes uh, over off 21st and Watermaker. You want to go in there. You can go bowling. There is an arcade. There is a, a snack uh, snack bar in there. There's a sports bar in there. There's putt-putt golf. And by God, there's even go-kart racing. And I know because we built it. (laughs) We used to own
0: that one. (laughs) Nice. Nice. And you can even check out the uh, Combat Air Museum. I mean, there's a bunch of stuff to do in Topeka, plus the cool-looking Capitol building. So, uh, you know, welcome to Jump Over Country. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) And thank you also for sharing your time with us as we yak about grease, gears, and cool car stuff. There's nothing like going on a fun ride, especially when you've got good friends to share it with. So... Uh, be sure to visit us on Facebook at Road Muscle Radio at RoadMuscleRadio.com dot com and on Twitter. I'm Catfish Groves and I am Brett Hatfield and we'll catch you down the road on Road Muscle Radio.